sputtering start to school and the latest from the state Senate. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. We'll be joined by State Senator Michael Gennaris returning to the show. He's been a frequent guest. Part of the reason is because he's the deputy leader of the state Senate under the still relatively new Democratic majority in the state Senate. And Senator Gennaris is of Queens. Uh, and so he has a leadership role in the chamber and um, he will join us to talk about next steps in the city's recovery, how he thinks uh, the state and city should solve their fiscal issues and what the state legislature, especially the state Senate that he helps lead, is doing about any of this. Um, and we'll also quickly get him uh, on the fact that state senators are up for election this year and there's elections coming up very soon. Everybody's focused on the presidential race and some of the congressional races in U.S. Senate across the country. But here in New York, especially the state Senate races are of uh, significant importance. And we'll, and we'll talk with him about whether his Democratic majority can keep that majority, whether they might lose some of the margin they have in the majority or seek to expand it. We welcome back to Max and Murphy, State Senator Michael Gennaris of Queens. He is the deputy leader of the state Senate and its Democratic majority. And he's been involved in a whole lot of things happening in the state legislature, especially over the last two years when Democrats took control of the state Senate and thus both houses of the legislature, along with the governor, uh, and passed a lot of legislation in 2019. They were picking up the pace here in 2020. And then, of course, uh, the pandemic hit. Senator Generis, welcome back. Good next. Thank you for having me back again. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, so you've been um, pretty involved lately, pretty focused on the reopening of the economy, issues related to small businesses, rent, uh, and you have just uh, made a focus of comedy clubs. Tell us a little bit about what that's all about. Yes, well, the regulations that the state has issued through the SLA predominantly, for whatever reason, has specifically singled out comedy clubs as businesses that are not permitted to reopen under any rules. Right? They were they were under the assumption, many of them, that they were operating under the same rules available to restaurants. So many of them that had small yards were um, uh, we're having performances uh, with the appropriate reduced capacity, um, et cetera. And then uh, all of a sudden they started getting uh, notified that that was not permitted. And then official guidelines came out saying the same. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why. They can't figure out why. No one's getting a good answer to them as to why that's the case. Um, the only functional difference between a comedy club and a restaurant is that someone's at the front of the room telling a joke. Um, and that does not present any inherent additional danger of viral transmission as long as other safety um, guidelines are being uh, adhered to, which, of course, they're willing to do. Um, and so I, I did uh, uh, bring a number of the comedy club owners together with the governor's top staff, and we had a meeting, and they seemed very understanding about it. I thought it was progress, um, and yet they still have not been able to resolve the issue. So we're hoping to, to get that across the finish line sooner than later because we, we should be partnering with our small businesses and trying to help them uh, get back to operating in a safe manner, of course, but get back to operating um, and not just putting obstacles in their way that no one can seem to explain the rationale for. Mm -hmm. Is this something where, um, you know, the state legislature is thinking at all about legislating? I mean, so much of the power around reopening and the rules and the processes have obviously been 
controlled by the governor and there's plenty of rationale for allowing him and the executive branch to have taken the reins on all of that. But at this point, given where New York is, is there any talk among at least the state Senate, if not both houses, about how to return and legislate with some of the issues that have been identified? Sure, and we have, right? When we went back uh, last time we were there and passed a whole host of election law changes to help facilitate um, an easier electoral process for November. So, yes, we obviously right. retain our power to legislate. But the whole idea of giving the governor um, the powers during the emergency that we did was that this situation uh, it was incredibly unique. It was uh, a unique emergency where flexibility and nimble uh, act- action was needed. We can't micromanage by legislation every little piece of the shutdown and reopening process um, because we'd be doing nothing other than trying to identify bowling alleys and comedy clubs and this and that, movie theaters and setting our own rules. It's it's really something that um, the executive and his agencies are best equipped to, to handle um, on a faster basis. So that's why we did that. We do maintain the power to overrule him. And we obviously retain the power to legislate, which we have done uh, in a number of instances since uh, the pandemic hit. Uh, so speaking of, of legislating and what, what might be on the docket, is there anything on the docket? Do you foresee the legislature doing anything before Election Day? Obviously, the entire legislature is on the ballot this year, although many, many you know members of the Democratic majorities in both houses don't have any or competitive elections, but some do. Um, do you foresee the legislature doing anything before the election? Well, we're, we're trying to make our decisions um, legislating irrespective of the electoral calendar. Um, this is an emergency we're in, uh, um, and as necessary, we'll go back and, um, and do our work. Uh, it's always a question of timing. For a, a good while, we are waiting on the federal government to see what they might um, uh, provide in terms of relief. That seems to be falling by the wayside now. Um, and so the some of the budgetary questions are rising to the fore. Um, there was a point earlier this month that I believe we were preparing to return uh, when it seemed that the school districts were beginning to implement cuts based on the deferment of payments that the governor was um, uh, uh, was implementing. Um, and then uh, uh, I know the UFT also went to court over this issue, and then the governor uh, provided um, uh, this month's payments so that kind of postpone the need to rush back and uh, enact and as it specifically relates to, to that issue. Uh, but we're always ready to go back as needed. Uh, and we just are monitoring when that's necessary uh, because uh, this is not a time when we're normally in session, but of course, given the circumstances, we're prepared to go back at any point. Mm. And are there things at the top of the list right now that are under consideration? I think the top of everyone's list right now are the, the budget questions that um, are looming. The deficit is incredibly large, both at the state and city level. Um, and the moment that um, uh, that the cash flow pro- becomes a, enough of a problem that uh, deep cuts start to get implemented as opposed to just uh, uh, deferred, uh, I think that will necessitate action on our part. And then, of course, the, the ongoing debate is uh, cuts versus revenues versus borrowing and Uh, I have uh, long had the position that uh, generating revenue is much less harmful to the state and the overall economy than deep cuts to important services. If we have if we have schools that aren't functioning or hospitals that aren't providing care um, uh, or sanitation system that's not working, that will do much more damage to our recovery than um, asking those who have a lot of money to 
give a little more so that we can provide those services. Um, and I believe any concerns about people leaving the state over that are, are not supported by the data. And that's the, the uh, response frequently offered by the governor. Um, so you disagree there. Um, but speaking of that, on July 29th, uh, the, the Senate Majority Leader, Andrew Stewart-Cousins, released a statement uh, basically saying it was important to continue to push for aid from Washington. Um, but basically, in the absence of that, uh, as you just indicated, the state may need to um, call on, as she put it, multimillionaires and billionaires to help the state shoulder the extraordinary burden. Um, that was July 29th. We're now obviously almost uh, a couple months later here. Where do those conversations stand? Is is the state Senate at least ready to, to move on any revenue raising proposals? Uh, we are. And I think, you know, we have a, we have a work group that the um, leader has established of a number of our members who are pouring over some of the various proposals that are on the table. Of course, we have to come to terms with our assembly counterparts. We can't do anything by ourselves on this issue. Um, and the governor has recently indicated a, a greater willingness to go down this road, although he um, has historically been more resistant to it. So it's a matter of getting everyone on the same page. But there is a question of uh, the scope of the problem. It's important to know the scope of the problem um, to um, inform us as to how big the hole is, how much we need to raise in revenue, what other options are available to us. Um, and the scope will be determined ultimately by by um, the federal government. And I don't think anything's forthcoming in the short term from them, but the election results in November could have a huge impact on whether or not um, there will be additional aid coming um, in, the, in the months ahead of us. Um, and so to the extent, uh, that's why I said earlier, to the extent um, we don't have a situation where the deferment of payments that the governor is implementing now are resulting in deep cuts uh, to the services. Uh, obviously, there's some cuts that are already happening, and that's not good. But um, but the moment when you know school aid doesn't start, doesn't flow, uh, I think we would need to act. But ideally, we would uh, have some idea of how big the problem is. And God willing, a President Biden uh, in January may come to our rescue. Certainly will more than this president has. The idea of, um, you know, moving on some revenue raising measures once the school aid stops flowing in any big numbers would sounds to me like a little bit late. No. Well, I mean, you make a good point. When when is the revenue realized, which also speaks to the urgency, uh, um, because it would depending on what the mechanism for um, revenue raising would be. Some of it could be immediate um, and some of it uh, will take months to to uh, show up in the ledger. So that's what the work group is going over right now um, to, to provide a menu of options, some of which might provide immediate revenue and some of which may, uh, may be more in the medium term. Right. Um, the other one of the other big questions facing uh, your chamber and the assembly and the governor has to do with the New York City budget. And, and it's both the side of state cuts that might come to localities, which obviously New York City is the biggest locality. Um, but also this question of, of Mayor Bill de Blasio and others seeking borrowing authority. The mayor wants to borrow $5 billion to cover um, expenses this fiscal year and next. What's your stance on that? And is there a reason at this point that um, the state Senate hasn't agreed with the Assembly to move forward on that? Yeah, well, first of all, the Senate is obviously interested in helping the city with its own uh, budget crisis. 
but I think the analysis that we're undertaking for the city is parallel to what I just indicated about the state. Um, and from the people we've spoken to, and including some people who've been outspoken about um, the need for additional borrowing, is that $5 billion is too big a number. It's not actually uh, necessary to fill um, the immediate hole that the city has. Um, and so we're trying to settle on what might the right number be. And, uh, you know, getting borrowing authority over a two-year period when, again, there may be a huge sea change um, in the approach of the federal government to city and state aid in just uh, four months. And we'll have our answer in two months as to whether that's happening. Um, it, it doesn't seem necessary to give a $5 billion over two-year borrowing authority to deal with the immediate crisis. We can always do what's necessary just for the next few months to make sure the city has the cash it needs, and we're talking to them about doing that. Um, and then we can always revisit if uh, if something goes haywire and we don't get any help at all going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're not worried about how much sort of uncertainty that might provide in the city's budgeting situation if they, you know, if you're sort of almost similar to the conversation we just had about the state ledger, you know, if you're sort of doing things uh, last minute or just enough to get the city by, but not giving them a little bit of planning cushion. Are you not, are you not worried about that approach and, and letting the mayor and the city council have a little more room to sort of think ahead and plan ahead? Well, I think they should have some room, but two years and 5 billion is both too long and too much. <laughs> I think they do what's necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, this mayor's so, term is only an, another year and four months uh, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So this borrowing authority would stretch eight months beyond uh, into the next mayor's term. So I don't know that that's um, the wise course. So one other thing um, that you've worked on recently is this um, 21st Century Antitrust Act. And I'm not sure... Uh, maybe you can make the connection. I'm not sure if that has really immediate, um, you know, is it immediate focus and need for the state to move on, in your opinion, or if it's something you're sort of starting to work on with a, with the future in mind once maybe this crisis is a little more behind us. But um, you want to explain to folks the gist of your of your antitrust act? Sure. And let me um, answer your question on the timing first. I mean, I, I'm viewing the um, the next several months as uh one of information gathering, um, talking to the relevant players, getting the legislation in tip-top shape so we can make a real push for it uh, in next year's session starting in January. We just had a public hearing about it. It was incredibly successful, people on both sides. We had tech companies supporting legislation. We had representatives of tech companies opposing it because the actual tech companies that oppose it refused to show up, uh, despite the fact that we invited them. Uh, but the next several months will hopefully be a period of uh, uh, of um, getting things in shape so that we can uh, see action on the bill uh, next year together with my assembly-sponsored Assemblyman Dinowitz. Um, what the bill does and why it's necessary, you, you saw the congressional hearings about a month ago now. Um, that is the concentration of power um, in fewer and fewer hands is uh, is very prevalent, certainly in the tech industry, but even outside of it. Um, and it is reaching dangerous uh, levels where small and medium-sized businesses are being squeezed. They're being uh, manipulated by um, these companies that have tentacles in markets that uh, weren't even imagined uh, when the antitrust laws were first written. So you get an example where a Google um, ends up having 60% of the searches on its website um, refer back to its own products as opposed to any competitors. So you're obviously icing uh, small and medium-sized businesses out. Uh, when you do it that way, you have um, uh, Facebook uh, 
purchasing Instagram in order to stifle competition, almost almost explicitly admitted that they did did it as, uh, for that reason. Um, and our laws are not equipped to handle that right now um, for a variety of reasons. So one of the things we're trying to do is take note of how the rest of the world handles this problem. Uh, and the U.S. is particularly uh, restrictive in the application of its antitrust laws. Um, uh, what we see in uh, the rest of the world is a standard called abuse of dominance, which means if you're a dominant player in the industry and you're taking actions that are abusive of your competitors, that opens up the door to regulatory enforcement. Um, we do not have the ability to do that here. Here you have to be uh, an actual monopoly um, and uh, engage in practices that courts have defined very narrowly in order to um, uh, allow the regulators to do their jobs. And so we, we've worked very closely with uh, Attorney General Tish James on this, her staff, and, and she have been terrific in um, helping uh, uh, guide us with their expertise on it. Uh, and uh, I think we would be setting an important standard for the entire country if we were able to get this done. Interesting. Well, we'll definitely um, follow up more on that with you at, at another point, but interesting to hear hear the gist and the rationale there. We just have a, a few more minutes, and I want to get to the, the elections that are happening in a moment, but uh, that Antitrust Act and, and the developments that are happening around um, the defeat of the industry city proposal in Brooklyn uh, lead me to ask about, you know, now that we're in this very deep recession with hundreds of thousands of jobs lost, if you've had any second thoughts recently about the defeat of the Amazon proposal in Queens, any any regrets on that, that um, the, the forces in opposition, which you were among, uh, didn't figure out a way to make that deal happen somehow? Certainly not, and because what we're seeing since that time is that Amazon has already added or announced 5,000 new executive positions uh, in New York City. Even in the midst of the pandemic, in our worst moments, they announced that they are uh, moving uh, over 1,000 employees into the Lord & Taylor building uh, in Midtown. So it was always my contention that Amazon had decided the New York City market was one they had to be in so that they would not surrender the talent to their competitors. Lo and behold, they're coming here. Facebook has announced an expansion uh, over the course of the summer. They were coming anyway, and they are still coming anyway. And we did not need to surrender $3 billion in incentives for that to happen. Uh, and so people like to joke about that number, but they are analyzing it incorrectly. It is really $3 billion that we saved because if those jobs show up anyway, if the tax revenue that comes from those jobs shows up in the city and state tax coffers anyway, then that's $3 billion we would have surrendered to them off of that right, well, that, uh, revenue that's an important, that we no longer have right. to. That's an important yeah, caveat, yeah. right? That the jobs and the tax revenue have to come. Right, right, right. Yes. Okay. Well, right, that, that's... that's anyway, usually... then that money can be reallocated. And, and now we have the ability to do that. They are on a faster pace with the actions they've taken since they announced they left than the agreement had called for them to be on. But, so remember, but, certain, but certainly there's a, a tighter ceiling on the number of jobs they'll probably... Uh, bring. But uh, in, our, in our last two minutes here on the elections that are happening, um, the state Senate Democrats obviously won a whole bunch of seats two years ago to take the majority by a wide margin. Are you are you worried about the the cross currents here with President Trump being back on the ballot and, um, you know, in some of these potential swing districts, even one in Brooklyn with Andrew Gernardis? Are you worried at all about your majority losing a couple of seats in this election? 
am I worried about? The President Trump is our biggest asset um, because he's going to get clobbered uh, in New York and in many of our districts. Um, so no, I'm not worried about that. I mean, we do have a large number of seats to defend due to our success uh, in the last cycle. Uh, and many of them were narrow victories in swing districts. So we obviously have our, our work ahead of us, but our candidates are terrific. And we also have the luxury <coughs> excuse me, of having a number of seats up to 10 that we can actually um, compete for that Republicans currently hold. And in many of them, or most of them, the incumbents are no longer uh, running for election because they've all ran for the exits, including uh, John Flanagan, who was their leader uh, up until a couple of months ago. Um, so we're pretty optimistic. Uh, we know, you know I've been through enough of these cycles to know things change rapidly and we have to keep our um, uh, uh, sleeves rolled up and, and, and work hard. And that's what we're doing for the next uh, five and a half weeks. And finally, just because he is the one sort of swing district senator in New York City, uh, Gennardis in southern Brooklyn, how worried are you about his uh, prospects of holding on to his seat? Well, it's, it's one of our competitive districts, to be sure. Uh, but he's done a, an amazing job uh, supporting um, uh, 9-11 heroes. He did uh, important legislation that provide uh, health benefits for them. Uh, which I know uh, um, is something that had been years uh, in the making, and he was able to get it done in his, in his very first term. Uh, he works his district incredibly hard. His opponent is a bit of a mess uh, with a very checkered past. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I, I think we're going to pull it out. All right. State Senator Michael Gennaris, he's the deputy leader of the Senate and its Democratic majority. We always appreciate you joining us. Thanks again for the time, and uh, we'll talk more soon. A pleasure, Ben. Thanks very much. Take care.